Thank you very much, Ruth. It's one of the um, agonies of working on flooding that uh, I always test the water, sorry about the pun, um, at the start of lectures about flooding to see just how many people are actually affected by it because it's not at all a funny thing uh, in any context. Excellent. Okay, well, um, I do hope we'll be getting some questions from you at the end. I'm looking forward to those. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming this morning. It's lovely to see so many of you. Um, I'm going to be doing a little bit of proselytising for geography, my subject, um, but I want to begin by just drawing everyone's attention to the implications of the title, Living with Flooding. We're talking about uh, one of a range of uh, environmental phenomena and events with which we have to learn to live. There isn't going to be a world, and we're certainly not in one now, um, in which we can prevent flooding in some kind of straightforward way. So the image on this opening uh, slide is from a woodcut, uh, 17th century woodcut, of flooding in the West Country, very much alluding to uh, the ways in which flooding uh, for many centuries uh, of human civilization has been understood, that is, as an act of God. What we're going to be looking at today uh, are the complexities of one laying claim to the idea that we can manage environmental risks like flooding and the challenge that that presents us with, and secondly, with one of the consequences of making those claims and rising to those challenges, which is that flooding no longer understood as an act of God, but as an act of humankind starts to bring responsibilities, duties of care and so on, very much closer to home. So, for the, all those of you who were living in the UK, and I'm going to be confining my talk today to flooding in the UK, I'm sure you're quite as aware as I of the situation uh, in the very early part of this year, when alarmingly large parts of the map of uh, Britain here, England and Wales... Um, because there are separate agencies that collect the data, um, under some form of flood threat, flood alert, flood warning, or as in the blue areas, parts of the country which are highly susceptible to sea level rise. And the numbered points there indicate areas of key railway infrastructure also under threat from flooding, probably the most famous case at that time was Dawlish uh, on the south coast. So the UK, we're a wet country. Uh, we're going through what the um, hydrologists call a flood-rich period. Um, and the climate change scientists tell us that we can expect uh, a growing number, a greater frequency of extreme weather events like flooding due to climate change. So in this kind of scenario, of course, all kinds of interests and concerns come to the fore, not least those that are economic. This is a figure that gives some kind of an indication of just the sheer number of properties that are at risk of flooding in the UK. The map shows uh, Greater London, and the darker the colour, the more properties are at risk, crudely put. But if we look at the right-hand side, we can also see that other parts of the UK are particularly susceptible in terms of the numbers of properties at risk, with Hull uh, right at the top uh, of that profile. And this, of course, is of huge concern to householders whose properties these are, 
but equally to a very key player in the ways in which we try to manage flood risk in the UK in some quite distinctive ways to certain other countries, and that is the insurance industry. But, of course, it affects much more than just economic dimensions. Whole lives are disrupted. School routines, getting to work, health services, arriving to help the vulnerable, uh, elderly, and so on. And this is a picture from uh, the Somerset Levels and um, that row of villages that was cut off for a very long period of time, a six-week period, with a car floating by and the emergency services trying to deliver some basic supplies uh, to this location. So whole lives are disrupted. And as many of you, I'm sure, will remember from the media coverage at that time, and each time a major flood event occurs, we get something not dissimilar now. It becomes a kind of echo effect each time an event occurs. Certain kinds of imagery and certain kinds of patterns of political conversation take place in the media. One aspect of that set of conversations is that science starts to become uh, caught up with uh, all kinds of political debates and arguments. This happens both at the global scale, and this is a, a Steve Bell cartoon uh, looking at climate change denial. So the argument that even at the global scale, politicians, I think there's a sort of a random business person there, perhaps indicated by the striped suit, I'm not quite sure, can't see a head, head in the sand, trying to hold back the tide of scientific evidence about global climate change, which as long as we try to hold it back means that we're not addressing the issues that are being raised. So there's a kind of global pitch for the way in which science gets caught up in all sorts of political arguments. But then again, there's a local pitch or a national pitch. This was in um, some coverage in a Sunday newspaper around about the same time, the early part of this year, making the claim, really, that wider public policies about public sector cuts in austerity Britain actually undermine our attempts and certainly our skill set in dealing with these emergency events like uh, intensive flood episodes. So what we can see in these kinds of contexts then, alongside all the emergency priorities for helping people, rescuing infrastructure and so on, it's a very publicly focused uh, role of science that gets caught up in the public imagination with the politics of where flood, in flood investments are made, what's the evidence base for where those investments are made and not made, is the evidence base on which our flood risk management policy reliable? Who knows? Nobody seems able to interrogate it. We don't know how it's produced. So we might think about these times, amongst many other things that go on in these emergency situations, as moments in which we get a very heady mix of science and politics, which sometimes ignites into local controversies that change the terms on which science and politics are done. Now, often everybody then puts their head in the sand in these situations. It's all far too controversial Nobody seems to be able to make any progress. The scientists go back into their bunker and the politicians into theirs. But I want to make an argument in this presentation today 
that actually we can see these uh, environmental disturbances as opportunities. I'm trying now, of course, to see the silver lining in the cloud because in many senses they are first and foremost devastating events. But they are, I think, opportunities in which we can think differently as a public culture about the relationship between science, local knowledge and policymaking. A whole series of environmental disturbances of which flooding is just one example. Here's another from the front of The Economist talking about, and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the Icelandic volcano, that uh, disrupted air traffic. Um, All those patterns of air travel uh, unable to take place because of a volcanic eruption, a threat of it happening again earlier this year. So these kinds of environmental disturbances can be generative in the the sense that they draw everybody's attention to that very strange and complex amalgam of natural and social forces that actually constitute environmental hazards and risks. These aren't just natural phenomena. Think about flooding. Floods occur in landscapes that have been reshaped by humankind over many centuries. In other words, the legacy of our own actions in the past makes flooding more or less likely in the present day. They force us, as a wider public, who both vote and want to be informed about the science that informs policymaking, about the ways in which we need to focus our effort on just what it is that's at issue in the event of an environmental disturbance like flooding. When our attention is focused on that question, what I've called knowledge controversies can emerge. As many of you uh, can imagine, the idea of a a controversy that knowledge becomes controversial uh, is something from which uh, many scientists and certainly many policymakers uh, would like to run and hide. But actually the case that I'm making is that the idea that knowledge becomes controversial is not necessarily a bad thing. It can in fact be a really positive thing for conducting science and its influence on policy more openly in the public eye so that we can actually start to interrogate and scrutinise how the evidence base on which decisions about where flood interventions are made, where uh, flood alerts uh, are are set off, uh, are actually informed. So these are opportunities, I would argue, when the knowledge that informs flood risk management becomes controversial, in which we can force the reasoning that informs current flood management policy to slow down, to explain itself to us, to make itself available to our scrutiny, and particularly to those directly affected by the flood or hazard at hand. And this is just an example of the case that I'm going to spend most of my time today talking about, of a petition in Pickering, the town of Pickering in North Yorkshire, um, in which precisely one such flood controversy took place. Finally then, from environmental disturbances to knowledge that informs flood risk management becoming a matter of public controversy, gives rise to conditions, not necessarily, but to conditions in which the possibility arises, in which we can think again about the distribution of expertise. Who knows what about flood events? What is it that the science knows? And what is it that the people who live and experience flooding know on the ground? Can they be brought together more effectively, collaboratively, 
to bring what they know to bear on better understanding how flood dynamics work in a particular locality. And that's where the geographers come in. These aren't geographers, let me add. These are random householders from Somerset. But it's how we geographers like to see ourselves. This is our territory. This is the place at which society and natural science meet, in which people's interests uh, in their livelihoods, their properties, and the health and well-being of their communities come to interface with um, the often obscure machinations of natural science. Halford Mackinder, the first professor of geography here at the University of Oxford at the end of the 19th century, described, and I've uh, made allowances for the um, unnecessary gender specificity of his statement, but nonetheless, geography then is the science whose main function is to trace the interaction of man in society and so much of his environment as varies locally. And over a century later, that's pretty much still the territory um, which we claim as our own. And in the case that I want to focus on now, the Pickering Flood controversy, we can think of that analogy of geographers wading in in a much more literal sense. It was this controversy in Pickering that a research project involving three natural scientists, physical geographers, hydrological modelers, and three social scientists, including myself, undertook uh, a piece of research precisely to try and bring the scientific and the local knowledge about flooding together in this area. What was the flood controversy in Pickering? So, for those of you who have visited Pickering, perhaps as a tourist, some of you might live there, it's, it's right at the foot of the North York Moors, a national park. Um, it's in Pickering Vale, which is that um, name dis uh, suggests. Um, it's a dense valley in which the confluence of many uh, rivers, streams, and water coming off the steep slopes of the York Moors all convene just outside of Pickering. This is a town historically extremely prone to flooding, it's a market town in the midst of a very agricultural area, and it boasts being home to one of the oldest steam railways still active in the UK. It's a very pleasant journey. Those of you who haven't done it, I thoroughly recommend it, from Pickering to Scarborough on the coast on the steam railway. So flooding in Pickering is nothing new. But over the course of the 1980s and 1990s, they began to experience much more regular uh, flood events of greater intensity and severity. And the government called in, um, in, this, uh, in Pickering, as in a number of other localities similarly affected by more frequent and more severe floods, a variety of experts to try to inform the development of new uh, management solutions. And in the case of Pickering, uh, as is normal with um, the uh, calling in of science in these kinds of contexts. It was a large consultancy, an environmental consultancy called the Babti Group that was called in by the Regional Environment Agency responsible for flood risk management in this part of the world. And the Babti Group uh, put forward a proposal. They looked at eight or nine different possible forms of intervention to mitigate flood risk 
in Pickering. Um, and what they tell us in the course of a very large report with very many appendices is that their proposals are based upon the use of a mathematical computer-based model. That's it. There is nothing more about that model in the report. There is no means of interrogating what that model might have been for members of the public who perhaps had picked up a copy of this report in the local library. But we know that their proposals are based on a mathematical computer-based model and that they lead this consultancy to propose that the most um, likely effects uh, of, of diminishing flood risk in Pickering would be achieved by building a large flood wall in the middle of the town, right across the steam railway line and the historic heart of a conservation uh, centre of the town. This did not go down well. <laughs> but what did they mean by flood modelling? What kinds of models were these? We can think of all different kinds of models. Just down the road here in Wallingford, um, in HR Wallingford, one of the big engineering uh, experimental stations funded by government and others, uh, they run one of the very largest physical models, literally a large room um, in which you can uh, imitate different kinds of topography and run water down it to see where it goes. But much the most common form of modelling that informs flood risk management, as it does very many aspects of environmental management more broadly, are computer models. And there are a number of elements, and you'll be relieved to know I'm not going to dwell on these terribly much, but just so that you, for those of you who are not already familiar with them, there are three, way, three dimensions to environmental modelling, in this case, hydrological modelling. The idea of which is to try and estimate the risk of flooding, or whatever the environmental hazard is that you're looking at, uh, in the future. So this is a form of science and a scientific practice that is, doesn't observe the usual um, expectations that we have of what makes science reliable. That is, we have repeated observations of the, or a phenomena or a relationship between phenomena occurring, which gives us the reliability of the evidence. We're precisely using models because we're trying to anticipate something that hasn't yet happened. So how is this done? First of all, the physical principles that under, underpin the way in which flood dynamic work, dynamics work uh, are worked out. And all of us in this room could figure out what those are. What are the variables we need to know about? How much water comes out of the sky? What does it fall onto? What's the topography that it falls onto? How fast is it going to rush off? Will it be absorbed? Is there lots of vegetation or not? And what kind of size of channels is that water going to flow down? So there are certain physical principles which basically follow um, uh, gravity, which then get expressed in mathematical equations. So those kinds of physical laws or principles of the way in which water falling out of the sky moves through a topology or through slopes and channels gets converted into a series of mathematical equations. And in the 19th century... It was those equations which some hydraulic engineer would, in each instance on which he, on which he or she had to work, uh, try to develop or apply those uh, mathematical equations to a particular channel or river. 
These days, and since about the 1970s, all that legwork is done, of course, by computers. So that the Babchi Group, like all the other consultants who are engaged around the UK in providing uh, an evidence base and advice for the best ways to manage flood risk in particular localities, all now use the same software packages that automate the equations, and all you have to do is to put in data from the local area, how much rain over what period, and the system runs itself. So it's a very automated way of doing modelling science. And what kinds of material and data do those modellers use, those consultants, when they're called in? Well, they use remotely sensed data. They don't necessarily, in fact, very often they don't visit the locality that they're being asked to model. So here we have satellite image of the North York Moors, the dark parts. Up here, the Vale of Pickering coming through here, going out to the sea. And on the right, you can see Cass Hydro, one of the uh, classic uh, modelling uh, manuals for modellers using uh, Cass Hydro software, and some of the classic kinds of pictures that they produce by running their models of the way in which water moves over this landscape. So by and large, they rely upon large data sets produced about rainfall produced by the Environment Agency, they rely on remotely sensed pictures of the topography that that rain falls onto, and they use um, automated software to bring those two things together and produce pictures and accounts or simulations of how water moves through a particular landscape. And therein lies the problem from the point of view of many local people experiencing flooding. And this is... Um, just one of the signs that when we first entered um, this study area was uh, widely distributed around the town. A series of public meetings about which, around which great anger had been expressed about this proposed flood wall in the centre of the town. And this was after a very um, extraordinary, despite the fact that Pickering is a place that has experienced flooding over the centuries uh, many times, it's always in the winter if you like, you can predict when it's going to happen. But there was a particular event in June 2007 when Pickering was underwater uh, in the middle of the summer. And this intensified the controversy around Babti Report's proposal of a flood wall. And these were some of the questions that we found on the lips of local residents as we quite um, fortuitously or unfortunately, depending on your point of view, decided to go and do our fieldwork the very week of the June 2007 floods. Would we appear like vultures descending on uh, the unfortunate, or would this galvanise people to want to speak to us um, and join in the collaboration that we were going to propose? So local people had a problem with the way in which the problem of flood risk was being defined by the experts, in this case, the Babti Group. Why do they keep saying that it's a one-in-a-hundred-year event when we've been flooded twice in five years? We're the ones with the experience of flooding. Why aren't the experts interested in what we know? So one of the great big problems for local people is the complete disconnect between the expert advice that the Environment Agency uses to base its flood policies on 
and the non-appearance of any of the people producing that advice in the local area. So this is where we, a group of geographers, waded in to run an experiment in public science to try to bring together modelling scientists with the local public and the local knowledge that they had of this very particular environment to produce a bespoke model of flood risk to inform more management options in this town. I'm going to one quick bore about the social science side of this because this was one of the key areas of innovation. So we had to invent a methodology, a way of working that would enable hydrological modellers on the one side who spoke in equations and used software all the time with local residents who knew this uh, landscape extremely well, whose properties had been flooded and who were there on the ground to observe the June 2000 events. And the methodology that, or the working method that we came up with, a way of working collaboratively between hydrological modellers and local residents, we call competency groups. And here are some of the features of competency groups in theory. We worked this out before we started. So we saw competency groups as a method that would enable social and natural scientists to work together and to, it would enable those scientists to work with flood-affected communities in order to interrogate and to redistribute what people knew, expertise, about flooding in this area. We recognised ahead of time that this would require quite a commitment, probably quite a challenging commitment on, for all parties, to respect the very different sorts of knowledge and modes of reasoning that different members of the group would bring together. And finally, we had to devise an ethics protocol. I've just signed an ethics protocol so that the film guys here can redistribute this lecture. And we all signed an ethics protocol, making sure that all members of the group, be they from the science uh, community or from the local community, would be permitted access to the materials and ideas that we produce together. In practice, competency group looks quite different. This is what Pickering looked like when we ran our first competency group. The building on the right is the civic centre in which we held our group meeting and it was underwater, appropriately enough, for our first flood competency group. We had six scientists, three social, three natural scientists, and we had eight local residents who'd volunteered to join us to work together over a period of a year in trying to better understand the dynamics of flooding in the town and to try and generate new solutions to the problem in this particular locality. And that's the building in which we met on all those occasions. One of the local resident members of the group in the very first meeting described what they saw as the trouble with experts. Every time we get the floods, he said, we get the meeting with the, the EA, the Environment Agency. They come along and somebody sits at the front and, oh, we won't do any dredging because this, that and the other. And you sit there as a layman and you probably noticed I tend to ask a lot of questions. I never have the answers. And I think to myself, why doesn't dredging affect it? 
Because just thinking about it from a simple plumbing point of view, it doesn't tie in with what these people say. And yet as a non-scientist, as a layman, I just sit there and think, this is an expert. How do you disagree? How do you argue with that? And indeed, one of the great challenges of this way of working is to get past the point at which the local members of the group and the scientific members of the group simply talk past one another. Here are, um, there are two examples here. I'm just going to talk through the first one. So A is talking about exactly the same observable process in the physics of flood dynamics, the way that water falling out of the sky moves across a landscape. On the right-hand side, you can see the way in which that's expressed in hydraulic modelling as the principle of volume conservation for an incompressible fluid. On the left-hand side, you can see some of the members of this competency group in Pickering discussing exactly the same physical principle, but in very different language. You think about a gutter and how much can go through it. And if it fills up, it comes over the top. So if you've got half the size of a gutter, it comes over the top more quickly. This is an analogy with a gutter to a river channel. If it's clogged up with vegetation, it's reduced the amount of uh, size that is free for the water to flow, and so it's going to come over the top more quickly. How do you get past talking past one another? Well, one of the solutions that we came up with was to mediate our collaboration by a whole series of things, things that in different ways convey or embody different kinds of knowledge claims that different members of this group brought to bear. Maps, computer models that the, the modelers brought, old photographs so you could see the same stretch of river from the late 19th century and compare it with images taken today. Rain gauges, we did field trips that looked at how the data on how much rain fell out of the sky was collected, and so on. A whole series of things that helped us to communicate better in our collaboration. And this is a picture of us, it looks like a tea break, um, in one of those first collaborations in the Civic Centre with the floods outside. So this is an opportunity then for local people to interrogate some of the background information produced by the experts. And one of the first things we began with was a map, joy to geographers' hearts everywhere. But the map's wrong, people kept saying. This is a map produced by the Environment Agency of the 2007 June flood event. And it's produced uh, by their uh, remotely sensed data and the models that they run on the basis of that data, not from observations on the ground. And so you can see, marked on this map, various corrections from that same, the experience of that same flood event from people living on the ground. Places where the official map said that the water went, but those on the ground had observed that it didn't, and corrections for where the official map said the water didn't go, but those on the ground knew that it did. So this is an important first uh, move, if you like, 
to open up the idea that all kinds of knowledge is produced through particular procedures and ways of doing things. And in that sense, all were open to question. It depended upon the observation place from which you produce the knowledge. And here, an echo of what we all heard repeatedly earlier this year in the Somerset Levels case. Uh, One of the most uh, popular local ideas as to what would improve uh, flood risk management in the local area. Not a flood wall, that wasn't necessary, but dredging. Dredging's always the answer. Scrape out everything right down to the sea. Water will move through really nice and smoothly. Off we go. So we devised the rather horribly termed graphic user interface, which this is. And you can see, a bit like a target, it's got crosshairs. And the dark area, you can see an outline here, is a map of the catchment of all the water that moves and converges just ahead of Pickering down here at the bottom. And through this device, we could try out everybody's pet theories of what form of intervention would make an improvement uh, in the flow of water such that flood risk was reduced. We tried out dredging, we tried out removal of vegetation, we tried out a whole series of different ideas. We also tried out the official proposal of a flood wall. And interestingly, what we found with all, uh, whether they were the pet theories or the official proposal, um, was that they all had severe disadvantages. Some made no improvement at all um, in the likelihood of uh, of flooding events. Several did, but immediately what they show you graphically, what everybody could observe for themselves, was that whilst that intervention might improve uh, a particular locality or a particular property from the likelihood of um, flooding, it merely displaced that somewhere else to somebody else's uh, property or elsewhere in the catchment and didn't, in an overall sense improve the situation. And in the course of trying out different ideas through that uh, graphic-mediated piece of modelling together, our attention turned not to focusing on flood risk management strategies based in the town, but upstream, heading up to the top of the moors. Don't we need to stop the water higher up? Somebody's bright idea in the midst of one of our sessions together. And indeed, that's where our attention turned to what have become known now as upstream storage solutions. So here we are now, right at the top of the moors, one of the tributaries that feeds into the rivers um, from which the floodwaters that affect Pickering derive. It's a very wooded landscape, Um, It's also a very denuded landscape in other parts from 18th century clearances uh, of the uplands for sheep farming. So after a year of working together, we identified to everybody's surprise, the modeler's surprise and the local resident's surprise, that actually the most effective intervention by our modeling um, activities was to put in small, what are called, uh, blockages or buns. Very small scale, 
um, storage capacity in multiple places in the upland reaches of the waterways that feed into the river above Pickering. And I, our idea was that if we made if those were, a series of those were made out of vernacular materials, it's a very sensitive landscape, it's a national park, it's made out of wood, or so called woody debris dams, or made out of earth buns, this would be as effective, our modelling seemed to suggest, as the flood wall, but with much less damage to the local environment. And the group decided to give itself a name and to put its propositions of upland storage into the public domain to invite other townspeople and, of course, the regulatory agencies and so on responsible for flood risk management to an exhibition in the Civic Centre, no longer flooded on the occasion that we ran this exhibition. And in going public, we gave ourselves a name so that we had a collective identity that could lay claim to the proposals that we were going to put into the public domain. We called ourselves the Rydale Flood Research Group. We wrote a consultancy report that we called Slowing the Flow. And we ran a a public exhibition in October 2008 to publicise this proposition that upland storage provided a solution that nobody else uh, had tried in this locality. And we brought our working methods to this exhibition so that other local people could try them out for themselves. So our flood modelling on this occasion took many other forms than the computer modelling that we've been doing within the group. We tried to describe how we'd gone about doing uh, the computer modelling in a series of posters that showed how we had derived the proposition of upland storage. But we also had a number of demonstrations. This one was for the children's section. Uh, This is one of our uh, local members of the group uh, being interviewed by the local press um, to demonstrate some of these physical laws of the way that water moves through channels um, for school children. He was a science teacher. The event was well covered by the local press and our idea about upland storage and the model that we developed to support it started to travel. Of course, once the local press get hold of things, you can't necessarily control the language that they choose to use. Um, But the Malton and Pickering Mercury, I think our favourite piece of local coverage, described a team of top university boffins and local residents, I think scientists always have to be boffins in a local context, have come up with new solutions to the flooding in Pickering. They've suggested a series of buns or mini dams be built on the moors north of the town to hold back water at times of flood. And interestingly, in both the press coverage and the radio and television coverage at the time, there was quite enough, uh, as, as much interest from journalists in the idea that boffins would choose to work with local people as there was in the idea or the proposition of mini buns. The idea of upland stories started to travel even further beyond that event and the work of the group. In April 2009, it was picked up by the National um, uh, Ministry, the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, and Pickering was chosen as one of three national demonstration projects to try to assess how so-called non-traditional or land management methods of managing flood risk uh, would work. 
So a new project was funded, funded by the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, and a member of the local, uh, of the regional uh, environment agency up in Pickering was put in charge of running that project. And the Rydale Flood Research Group, a local member of it, was also put on that project team. We're looking at alternative measures to reduce flood risk, and this whole catchment approach is quite new. This follows a study by the Rydale Flood Research Group following a close collaboration between academic researchers and local people. In other words, the policy-making communities too were as interested in the idea that scientists and local people could collaborate as they were in the substantive proposition of upstream, of upland storage. So what has the work of the Rydale Flood Research Group, this what began... As, a research, as an experiment in doing public science, what could we say is its legacies after the event? Well, certainly as scientists, we're now doing a great deal of work uh, developing this collaborative way of working, bringing scientists and local people affected by environmental hazards and risks together to work collaboratively. We're doing this in two ways. One is to turn this collaborative methodology into a, a web-based toolkit so that lots of other people in lots of other situations affected by other kinds of environmental hazards as well as flooding can use it for themselves. But here at Oxford, we've also just begun a very large project in which the same collaborative research methodology will be put to work in looking at the disputes and controversies surrounding the management of drought and water scarcity in the Thames catchment. On a day like today, um, that seems an unlikely problem for the Thames catchment, but believe me, uh, it's quite as serious as that of flooding. But much more importantly than any kind of scientific legacy is the legacy that that project has left behind in Pickering. So following the demonstration project, finally Upland Storage has received funding from both the local authority and various national agencies. And we now see in situ the woody debris dams extensively across the uplands uh, the forested uplands, of which you can see an example over here. It looks a bit like a beaver dam, and it's made out of materials from the forests in which they're located. And under construction now, an earth bund just to the north of Pickering, which also saves the steam railway track uh, and will be entirely covered and vegetated and integrated into the landscape. In other words, we've left a, 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 we have left a flood risk management option that was previously not on the table and that is affordable enough to have been built and which has now become a national demonstration project for what's come to be known as natural flood risk management. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>